Every Sunday we pray, Thy kingdom come. Hopefully you pray that daily as well. It's how our Lord taught us to pray. He didn't always get real concrete with his disciples, as we'll see today. But on that one he did. He said, pray, thy kingdom come. And it really should be our earnest and sincere prayer that God's kingdom arrive on earth within space and time, and that it looks on earth like it does in heaven. Maybe you wonder, what would it look like if God's heavenly kingdom really were on earth? Maybe there are some ideas floating around in your head right now. Well, if God's kingdom came to my home, that would mean my children would obey me, and they would stop mumbling when I asked them a question, right? Or if God's kingdom really came, my parents and teachers might leave me alone. <laughs> You'll have other notions of what the kingdom of God on earth would look like. And my guess is that it's probably a little more difficult to picture than we might at first believe it to be. One reason it's a challenge is because we don't have a great idea of what kingdoms look and feel like because we've never lived in one. We're Americans. Americans believe kingdoms are anathema. We can't fathom a situation where it's a good idea to give sovereignty to one monarch and then his or her children and then the next generation and so on and so on. That's why we're here. We didn't buy into that model. We think we're only safe when government is in the hands of, say, 350 million people at the same time, right? Which makes all sorts of sense. Unfortunately for us, the entire Bible, and for that matter, all of human history, is oriented around the idea of a kingdom, a monarch. When we read the book of Revelation, what we discover is that the culmination of the world is a kingdom. A kingdom where Jesus is king and his people are little kings and queens. Now, I know that doesn't sound like a lot of exciting, inspirational talk. But that's the way it is. Christians are members of the kingdom of God. And they should have their hearts set on his kingdom becoming a living, breathing reality in everyday life. It should be so deep in our DNA that it's one of the few phrases we utter on a daily basis. Thy kingdom come. So, the perfect segue to all that is now I go on to tell you in very black and white terms exactly what the kingdom is like. Right? Well, you'll be disappointed because Jesus, strangely, isn't very black and white about the kingdom. I know that can be a real source of frustration for you, especially if you're a numbers and a data person. Jesus can be elusive sometimes, right? A bit fuzzy. He answers questions in ways that sound like they have no relation to the question at all. Have you ever noticed that? He makes a brief comment and then walks away without any explanation at all. And worst of all, when he has the perfect opportunity to keep it real about the kingdom of God, he tells these strange stories called parables 
that leave us in more doubt about Him than, than, than we had before we heard them. And yet, for all of that, here we are. Here we are on a Sunday reciting your kingdom come as if we know what we're talking about. And Matthew 13 is one of those places that peppers us with these brief parables about the kingdom, like the one about the sower. The sower who throws seed everywhere, and some of it lands on good ground, and some of it doesn't, and a small fraction of that which is sown takes root and produces a great harvest. And I like that. I like that. I mean, look at us here on a warm Sunday afternoon in July while everyone else is out at Cannon Beach sipping cocktails. We're here, right? We're the good guys. We're the small group. We're dialed into Jesus. Just a small amount of seed can bring forth fruit. Yeah, I like that one. Mustard seed's another one I like. That's a good one. Smallest, and something great comes from it. The smallest seed grows into this great tree. So in town, you may get discouraged that we're not rocking Portland, right? With our crowds and our multi-sites. But don't be frustrated with that because the kingdom of God is a mustard seed. Don't you like that? And then he tells another one. This one about yeast. Leaven is the old term you find in some translations. At first glance, it looks very similar to the other parables, like the one about mustard seed. The small, the insignificant, brings about the beautiful, the bounty, everything that lasts, Everything that satisfies. Okay, yes, I think that is part of what Jesus is getting at. But there are some strange aspects to this little parable about yeast that makes me wonder. It doesn't quite fit with the others. One old theologian, C.H. Dodd, put it this way. It leaves the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application. <laughs> A fancy way of saying, we don't know what this means. So Jesus, what are you trying to say this time? Well, yeast in the ancient world wasn't quite like the yeast we use in our baking today. I'm not a baker by any means, but I am a grocery shopper. So I know you can walk down the grocery aisle and pick up a can or a box of yeast to use in your cooking. Nothing about that yeast seems unusual or problematic. We add just the right amount and the bread rises or the beer brews, whatever you're doing at your house. But in the ancient world, it was a little different. In the ancient world, you would take a piece of freshly made dough you place it in a jar that sits on the counter in the corner of the room. And you would just leave it there. And you would let it sit until it molds, and ferments, and rots. 
starts to smell foul. And then, believe it or not, when you want to bake your bread, you break off a piece of that stinky, nasty yeast. And you work it into the dough. And it spreads quietly, silently, infecting the whole thing. Sound good? You hungry? Seems strange to me. Does it to you? That Jesus would choose an image like rotten, molded dough to describe the kingdom of God. Furthermore, I can't find any place in Scripture where yeast is viewed in a positive light. You ever notice this? It was prohibited in Old Testament sacrifices to God. No leaven, no leaven in the bread, no yeast. The Israelites couldn't even have it in the house during Passover celebration. They had to remove it completely. The time around that Passover celebration was even called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. One of the biggest celebrations on the Jewish calendar, completely prohibited yeast. And then St. Paul picks up the thing, lest we think this is an Old Testament thing, and in a couple of places, he warns young Christians against the deceitfulness of sin and the image he chooses to describe that deceitfulness of sin is yeast. And he says, don't you know that a little leaven, a little yeast, leavens the whole lump? Like this is corrupting, terrible stuff. If it gets in you, not only will it corrupt you, but it will corrupt others around you. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like yeast <laughs> that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. And that's it. Parable over. Good luck sorting that one out. What sort of God are we dealing with? Who takes the messy, stinky, rotten, sinful, pagan, left-wing, right-wing people who know nothing that we know, and he uses them to bring in his kingdom. This isn't the way it's supposed to go. The kingdom arrives through the good guys, through the pastors, through the priests, through the soup kitchen volunteers, through the evangelists, through the ones who go to Bible study. Think about when God sent his people into exile in Babylon, and they remained there for decades. You know how they returned, right? There was no Israelite hero that was raised up and gathered an army and defeated the enemy. You remember who it was? It was Cyrus. Cyrus was the king of Persia, an Iranian. There's no indication that Cyrus loved and worshipped Yahweh. He just did, the scripture says, what God put on his heart to do. I wonder how the Israelites felt about that. 
Do you think it annoyed them that they had to give credit to a Persian, an unbelieving idolater who held them captive? To admit that God had come through on his promises to bless them and he didn't raise up another Gideon or Samson or David? It must have been a bit confounding for the Israelites. Cyrus, of all people that God used to bless his people and to bring his kingdom in. I have no affection for our former president. I'll, spell, I'll spare you my preferred descriptors. But for all of my disdain, I can't deny that God can and does use such a person to bless and advance his kingdom in the world. Leaven? Yeast? Oh, you bet. But who am I to question God about how he chooses to grow his kingdom? Now, some of you feel the same way about our current president. Where I grew up in the South, I'd get fired from my church much faster for encouraging someone to vote Democrat than I would for spouting some Trinitarian heresy that people could care less about. My sisters and brothers there couldn't conceive of any scenario where a Democratic president could be a blessing from God. Kingdom yeast, we might call it. It isn't anything we'd expect from anywhere we'd expect. And if that wasn't enough, this is the only parable in Matthew 13 where the main agent in God's kingdom program is a woman. I mean, Jesus is just having a laugh now, isn't he? He's really poking us, being as provocative as possible. The person at the very bottom of the social ladder, down there with tax collectors and occupying Romans and Samaritans. And this woman hides the yeast in the dough. Isn't that a strange way of phrasing it? It's unseen. It's the same word used for hiding your loot when it's been stolen. Unseen, unnoticed, covertly, under the cover of night, as it were. The pastors don't know what's going on. The evangelical establishment doesn't notice. The, me the megachurches are blind to what she does. Nobody sees it. Everybody thinks they know exactly what the kingdom looks like and who's doing real kingdom work. And somewhere over in Hazelwood, where nobody should be after dark, an unknown, unnamed woman hides a rotten piece of yeast, doesn't knead it into the dough or use any elbow grease, just tucks it away and hides it in the dough. And then God gets involved. And it produces enough flour, enough bread for a banquet, a hundred people. 
thy kingdom come. We pray. It will. But it's not always obvious when and how and who. And sometimes that can be a surprise to all of us. I always look, scan my file for personal stories to share with you. I don't always like borrowing stories from other people, but I found one that fits really well. So I'm just going to read it to you the way it was told. Will Willman is a great storyteller. Willman says in his last congregation, this was some years ago, probably in the 80s, that he said, we decided we needed to grow. So we wanted to launch an evangelism plan. We studied a program from our denomination telling us how to get new members, and among other things, the church growth program advocated a system of door-to-door -door visitation. You ever do that? Yeah. So we organized ourselves into groups of two, and on an appointed Sunday afternoon, we set out to visit to invite people to our church. Teams went out, armed with packets of pamphlets describing our congregation, pamphlets telling them about the denomination, Flyers portraying the smiling pastor, inviting people to church. And each team was given a map with its assigned street. Helen and Gladys were given a map. They were clearly told, go down Summit Drive and turn right. That's what they were told. I heard the team leader tell them, you go down Summit Drive and turn right. Do you hear me, Helen? That's Summit Drive, turn right. But Helen and Gladys, both approaching 80 after lifetimes of teaching elementary school, were better at giving than receiving directions. And they turned left, venturing down into the housing projects to the west of Summit Drive. We told them to turn right. They turned left, which means Helen and Gladys went to evangelize the wrong neighborhood. Late that afternoon, each team returned to the church to make their report. Helen and Gladys had only one interested person to report to us, a woman named Verlene. Nobody on their route was interested in visiting the church, nobody except Verlene. She lived with her two children in a three-room apartment in the projects, we were told. Although she had never been to a church in her life, Verlene wanted to visit ours. This is what you get, I said to myself, when you don't follow directions. When you won't do what the pastor tells you to, this is what you get, a woman from the projects named Verlene. Next Sunday, Helen and Gladys proudly presented Verlene at the 11 o'clock service. Verlene, along with two scruffy-looking children. She liked the service so much, she said she wanted to attend the Women's Thursday morning Bible study. Helen and Gladys said they would pick her up on Thursday. Thursday, Verlene appeared, proudly clutching her new Bible that Helen and Gladys had bought for her 
It was her first Bible she had ever seen, much less owned. Wilman says, I was leading the study that morning, study on the uh, election for the coming Sunday, which was Luke 4, the story of temptation in the wilderness. And he asked, have any of you ever been faced with the temptation and with Jesus' help resist it? Have any of you refused some temptation, the cause of your Christian commitment? And one of the women told how just the week before there was some confusion in the line at the supermarket and, and before she knew it she was standing in the parking lot with a loaf of bread which she had not paid for. At first I thought, she confessed, why should I pay for They have enough money here as it is. And then I thought, no, you're a Christian. So I went back in the store and paid them for that loaf of bread. Wilman said that I made some approving comment. It was then that Verlene spoke. A couple of years ago, I was into cocaine really big. You know what that's like. You know how that stuff makes you crazy. Well, anyway, my boyfriend, not the one I've got now, the one who's the daddy of my first child, that one, well, we knocked over a gas station one night, got $200 out of it. It was as simple as taking candy from a baby. Well, my boyfriend, he says to me, let's knock off that 7-Eleven store down on the corner. And something in me just said, no, I've held up that gas station with you, but I ain't going to hold up that convenience store. He beat me for it. But I still said no. It felt great to say no, because that's the only time in my life I ever said no to anything. It made me feel like someone. And through a stunned silence, I managed to mutter, well, uh, yep, that is resisting temptation. Let's pray. <laughs> After I stumbled out of the church and was standing in the parking lot, helping Helen into her Plymouth, she said to me, you know, I can't wait to get home and get on the phone and invite people to come next Thursday. I think you can get a good crowd for this kind of thing. Did you notice the verse at the end after Jesus finishes all the parables? And he said, have you understood all of this? And they said, oh yeah, we have, for sure. 